All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, today is the, uh, let's get this right, June 18th. <laughs> and we're on part four of lesson six on how to meditate. And uh, we have, um, just by way of a roadmap, today will be the last class on how we meditate and then Next week will be the last lesson in the series, and we'll look at the um, obstacles uh, to meditation and how we can overcome them, uh, and it'll be a time of extended discussion about things that have been learned in class and feedback that you'd like to offer. And so in our analysis on how to meditate and what the content of our meditation has been, uh, we started with... God's Word and then creation and providence, and today we're going to cover the aspects of creation and providence and how that plays a role in our meditation and specifically how important that role is in our meditation. So some of the material this morning uh, will come from uh, a book by John Flavel called The Mystery of Providence, and uh, he has uh, a section in there on different aspects of how meditation and thinking about providence work together. So we're going to go through and and look at this. Uh, His first point is that God explicitly commands us to meditate on his works of providence. And I would say especially, but not exclusively, on his redemptive work in our lives. So the first reference I want to look at this morning is on Deuteronomy 8, 1 and 2. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And it's interesting that in verse 2 of Deuteronomy 8, that part of the ability to possess these promises is stipulated that it occurs when you will remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, know what was in your heart, whether you'd keep his commandments. But this idea that God expects us to remember things that he's done, that's, that's the point, that he is commanding us, you must remember. You may not forget. And 40 years is a long time when you think of what God has done in your life. He says, reflect back, reflect back in detail, reflect back particularly. What is it that I've done for you? And you will have this as a key provision for being able to realize the promises that and the blessings that I've extended to you. Let's look at the next item on providence. It's our duty because neglecting to remember is a sin. So in Psalm 28, David describes the wicked in a bunch of graphic language. But at the core, what is their sin? Well, it's a failure to remember the works of the Lord. So he says, starting in verse 3, he says, Do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity, who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. Give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them according to the work of their hands. Render to them what they deserve because they do not regard the works of the Lord nor the operation of his hands. He shall destroy them and not build them up. Isn't it interesting that their sin is a failure to meditate on the works of the Lord? What are the works of the Lord? the operation of his hands. What does that, what do those two phrases mean to you guys? The works of the Lord and the operation of his hands. The maintenance of the whole universe is one. Yeah, the maintenance of everything, right? Yeah. What else? How else might we describe that? The way he's worked in history, absolutely, yeah. Is both what he's done in the past, what he, what he did in creation. The, his creation itself is, is depicted as a work. 
right? And on the first Sabbath day, what did God do? He, he observes what he, the work of his hands. He's resting from his labor. And the, you just see, you're seeing a, a, rep, a parallel repetition here, the, the works of the Lord and the operation of his hands. And those two things are there to convey to us that there's a lot to think about. But it's wrapped up with this idea that people should regard. And that's one of those cousin or sister words to meditation. It's there to remind us that it's not just noting it, but it's a careful, thoughtful consideration to the point that we would understand and discern so that eventually it moves our heart the right direction. So even here, though we don't have something as an limited in language to say you need to meditate, the failure to meditate on providential works is part of what makes the sin so egregious in Psalm 28. And when you read the verses 3 and, and 4 and you see just how destructive the wicked have been, right? Um, the workers of iniquity speak peace, but inside they've got evil in their hearts. And this is because they fail to meditate on what God's done. So here is a way as you encounter a psalm, you encounter these phrases, you can see that not only do we have a positive injunction to remember, but it's also stated negatively that you may not forget. Uh, and Psalm 28 is a good example of that. Meditating on God's providence fills us with wonder and awe. There are many different places we could look at in Scripture. I've got, uh, I've got two of them here. In Psalm 105, verses 1 through 6, we see, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing psalms to him. Talk of all his wondrous works. Glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face forevermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Well, here we see a very positive example given to God's people to uh, participate in the act of giving praise and honor to God by making known his deeds among the people, talking to others, to each other, about what God has done. That's kind of an interesting idea. We're to talk of his wondrous works. You know, it's interesting. I don't think the scriptures ever depict God's ongoing providential care of the world as something mundane, as something merely routine. And if you think about the way in which it's sustained, if he's actively sustaining all things, then there really isn't anything mundane or routine. There's, there's no closet deism invoked in any of this. There's no great big clock with a great big spring, right, that's been wound up. It's active. Everything that is done throughout the world is done by the action of God in a positive sense. He says, this is how I want things to be. And the psalmist is saying his works are wondrous. They're a wonderful thing to behold. What makes them full of wonder? What is it that when you think about God's providential care of the world, you think about his creative acts, what is it that makes it wonderful? I mean, if it's not wonderful, the psalmist is misleading us, right? By saying these wondrous words, he's just using uh, excessive um, uh, florid language to describe something that's not really true. But I don't think that's the case. I think God's works are wonderful. So what makes them wonderful? beauty and the uh, design of his creation the way everything works together sustainably is a part of it. Sure, yeah. That's right. That's enjoy it. <laughs> and it's enjoy it. Yeah, what else? Well, the storm we had last night certainly showed us God's power. Yeah, they do. That's right. Yeah. It's, there, so there's a sense in which observing certain types of phenomena remind us of the power of God. Yeah, absolutely that's true. Absolutely. Jeff? His works are such that we should wonder upon them. 
That's exactly right. Yep. Yeah. It does. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. How else can we think of this? Is, is there a limit or a, only a category of things we can think about that are wonderful in providence and creation? his wonder includes all that we've been hearing in the preaching suffering it's not just all the great times we've had how things went swimmingly but very soberly and very very deeply the suffering that he's brought into your life and, and what he's doing through that it's all connected with really deeply so then you can think well on family you were born into, where you live, how you got there, the things you don't have, and just all of the suffering. It's a wonderful thing if you meditate if you meditate on this providence in that way. Especially it's especially hard when you don't necessarily even see like where it's going or what it's doing. You don't have the particulars, but you know that it's from his hand, just like the thunderstorm, just like the rest of these he, those works of providence are good to you, even in the very hard works of providence, which should also be remembered. And uh, there's a great goodness that comes from that. That if you if you don't meditate that way, it just uh, I think it just leads directly to bitterness. Sure. Yeah. And and I think I think it's it's you could make a point that the a special category could be offered in thinking about providence, and that is the redemptive aspects of what God has done for his people, that there's something God's people can reflect on that others are not going to see. Uh, and, and why, when you don't appreciate the design of something up front until much later when you have a chance to uh, think about it, ponder it, and, and maybe see how it comes together in a way you hadn't appreciated earlier, that gives you an opportunity to see how inscrutable providence is and why it's something you should be thinking about, especially in a redemptive state. Yeah. One other reference, I didn't put it up on a slide here, but in Psalm 111, verses 2 through 4, it has some interesting ideas. It says, the works of the Lord are great. We've already discussed what that kind of language means. The works of the Lord are great, studied, or they're sought out by all those who have pleasure in them. So here we've got this sense that when we think about God's ruling and governing and organizing, the wisdom involved, it's God's people take pleasure in these things. So they are sought out by all those who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. He made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. The depiction here, you'll, you'll never see that the works of the Lord are tedious, right? That, that, that's, that's not on the spectrum of things that the Bible describes in the family of God's works. As you think about words, they're wonderful. God's people study them. They seek them out because they have pleasure in them. It's honorable and it's glorious. And then the psalmist says, his righteousness endures forever. Why would he say that? What would cause that statement to be made in the midst of pondering God's works? And then in verse 4, he made his wonderful works to be remembered. He made his wonderful works to be remembered. So when we think about the idea of wonder and awe and providence, we're not, we're not limiting it to things like sunsets and sunrises and mountaintops. That seems to be the way it's visually depicted uh, in kind of in a popular form. Uh, it's, it's in the storm. It's in biology. It's in science. It's in math. It's in computer science. It's in nails and steel and truck tires and whatever else, right? I mean, there's a lot of wonder that goes on in the world. So Flavel has a, uh, so I, I hope those points are, are something that stick with you to realize that this is, this is an important aspect. It's not just meditating on the things God has exclusively written and preserved for us in his word, 
But he's also written in creation. You can think of things like Psalm 19, for instance. Uh, the, the creation has some sort of design intent to it. Uh, and it speaks to us. God made these things for, so his wisdom would be on display, so it would give us something to think about. But then Flavel takes it an, another, another degree, and I, I appreciate this distinction he makes about meditating because I think it can be hard to keep this in the front of our mind. So he, he summarizes this meditating on providence with, with this statement. He says, on the whole, whatever affects our communion with God in any of his ordinances is wont to produce upon our hearts the same we may observe to follow our conversing with him in his providences. Let me read that again. On the whole, whatever affects our communion with God in any of his ordinances is wont to produce upon our hearts the same we may observe to follow our conversing with him in his providences. And I don't think I quite appreciated his equating the two. I think if you sat someone down today and said, is it good to think about the Bible? It is. Is it good to go to church? It is. Is it good to sing praises? Yeah, there's a lot of benefit to that. Is it good to have communion? It certainly is. Is it good to pray? Yes, it is. Would you say all of that is true and produces the same result when we meditate on his providences? I don't think I would have said yes prior to going through this study. I don't know that I would have said, well, it's way down here, but I'm not sure I would have put it way up here. I think that's the emphasis I'm saying. This should come up in our estimation. God's providences are a wonderful thing to behold, and why would you suspect that he doesn't intend to use his providence as a way to communicate grace to you? What would, why would you have that as an assumption? I think I had it, but why would that be an assumption? I don't think that's a good assumption to have. I think we should rest. And, and Flavel is saying on the whole, so I don't know how far we should press this, but I think we should elevate it maybe in a considerable amount more than what we had thought about before. And I want to follow that up with maybe one other thought on why this is important, this idea of meditating on providences. And, and I think it has to do with with a thread of potential unbelief in our lives. Um, when we think about, uh, oh, I did add that on a slide, sorry, for those who wanted to read it. Uh, to think the Lord is gracious and full of compassion uh, because of his wonderful works to be remembered. That's, that's a beautiful thing. So let's think for just a minute on the attributes of God as another element to this idea of providence. Shorter Catechism asks, what is God? He's a spirit. He's infinite, eternal, he's unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So let me ask the question, do you expect God's character to be manifested in his governance and ordering of all things? Do you expect God's character to be manifested in his governing and ordering of all things? So I might ask if, that, if you expect it to be true before I made the statements about the last couple of Psalms and maybe the statement now, whether you think it's to be true. Uh, but do you anticipate seeing holiness, justice, wisdom, goodness, truth in providence? Or do you expect there might be a discrepancy between God's attributes and his work for providence? And for those who might not be aware, that's a trick question. (laughs) So does it strike you as a bit odd to anticipate the... Everyone, I think, would step back and when contemplating God's attributes, will say, yeah, he's just, he's good, he's true, right? He's wise, all-powerful. Nobody's going to be brash enough to dispute any of that, right? Not directly. Not directly, no, that's right. What was an indirect way you're thinking about challenging that, Vicki? Well, there is a, a, a lot of focus, at least on social media, on, on being broken and um, you know, difficulties and sorrows, and there doesn't seem to be any place for believing uh, these truths about God. Somehow that would diminish your pain, or 
I don't know. It's like your pain is more important than God's providences, God's goodness. Um, I don't see them coming together for Christians, even for Christians that I believe about. Like, sure. Sure. What other ways might we be tempted to not see the consistency of God's attributes in providence? Well, since there's sin in the world, we often see sinful actions and, and all kinds of consequences that you could say, in one sense, they're not consistent with God's nature, right? That's in rebellion to God's nature. So. We don't understand why this providence isn't to, to thwart some of the actions that we see. Of course, we don't know all the actions he has thwarted, <laughs> but for whatever reason, you know, all these, we see all this today, you know, and it, it looks different than what, what we expect to find in heaven. Yeah, that's true. This, and, and, and sin makes it incredibly difficult to see things clearly, doesn't it? Uh, and sometimes the only thing that helps in making providence clear is time. See, part of the danger is prejudging providence, isn't it? Part of the danger is assessing what's going on around us and drawing conclusions about it without having a sufficient amount of time to see it as it was designed or what was in scope. I'm sure when Joseph got thrown in a pit by his brothers. He had a hard time seeing the goodness and mercy of God. Later in life, he came to realize that was exactly what was happening. And didn't excuse his brothers, and his brothers had the answer for all those things. But Joseph was able to see this providence in a very different light, but only after a very great amount of time and suffering. So I'm not implying that the acts of providence are immediately clear to us in how they resonate with God's character. But over time, we should be able to see that, and certainly from historical events of long ago. And that produces faith. That is deeply connected to faith. Sure. You have to believe that in the midst of it. You don't have the answer. Like, this is the definition of faith. When you you have to trust in that, you're missing. I, I don't know where it's going to come, but you believe in the one who's doing it and so on. It is intimately connected to faith. Sure, it is. And it could even be, it could even be a huge reason for why he's doing it. Right, right. So when we think of Romans 1, we're often drawn to the judgments that have been prepared with, this, with these distempered brains that are explicitly depicted. But for our points... I want to read Romans 1.20. It says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Well, that kind of settles it, doesn't it? Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. It's embedded. And Paul says, you can clearly see it. You can clearly see what? His invisible attributes. God is on display in the world, and he wants you to ponder it, just like he wants you to ponder his word. That's right. He made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Why would the psalmist say God's gracious and full of compassion and tie that to his wonderful works to be remembered if there wasn't something in his wonderful works to be remembered that demonstrated graciousness and compassion, right? He's not, he's, he's not making up stuff. He's connecting the dots, right? The Puritans thought a lot about providence. They thought a lot about, uh, Flavel thought a lot about providence. And he has a number of sermons. Uh, and then he has in his works a, a series called Wonderful Sea Deliverances. And there are accounts of British seamen going out and the troubles they encountered and how God delivered them. And he uses these as accounts to describe what God was doing. And, and I mention this to say this wasn't an idle speculation. He was putting it to work in his port town so that he could think about different ways God's providence was affecting a very small sliver of individuals over here and how we should spend time thinking about them. 
he, he thought it was so important for his people, he started recording them so that they would understand the ability to think about providences in a new and gracious way. So I'm not necessarily recommending you go read the book, but I'm recommending the action he was taking that recounting providential works is an important part of the Christian life. And Puritans took it seriously enough to write them down, even though none of us are probably threatened by sea deliverances or the lack thereof right now. I had dinner at Lake Hefner the other day. It was enjoyable, but I didn't feel threatened by it. So, <laughs> so I don't feel compelled to read the sea deliverances. Uh, but Edmund Calamay had was another Puritan who wrote quite a bit about uh, uh, meditating. And I, I've just got a couple of quotes that, uh, and and the, the quotes are here to help you see that they thought this was an important idea to have in your mind. He said, the reason why the providence of God, providences of God take no more impression upon our hearts is for want of the grace of meditation. The providences of God are very mysterious, and God in the government of the world does walk in the clouds. I love that phrase. He does walk in the clouds. And truly, I am very confident that which God does especially require of his children in these days is to meditate upon his providence as well as upon his ordinances. There are many rare lessons to be learned from the consideration of the providences of God. The government of the world doth walk in the clouds. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Why do you think he said that God does especially require this meditating in these days? What do you think he was writing that for? When was he writing? 1600s. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the point being, it was a little bit of a trick question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? I, I, I think... We have many lessons to be learned by thinking about God's providences today, just like they had to be learned in God's providences today. People, different people, groups in different times face varying degrees of blessing and suffering and troubles. I mean, it waxes and wanes, it's hardly uniform, and yet he, he makes the point that this can be an antidote for understanding how to endure. Um, he has one other quote. Uh, and I want to look at a, uh, uh, a, a passage in Luke. He says, What is the reason the saints of God are so distrustful of God's providences when they are ready presently to sink and to say they are undone? What's the reason? It's for want of meditation. So therefore, Christ says in Luke 12, Take no thought what you should eat and what you should put on. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouses nor barn. God feeds them. How much more are you better than the fowls? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, and yet I say to you, as Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Do you consider the lilies and the ravens? Did you study the love of God to you so that you would not distrust him under any sad providence? Do you think about lilies and ravens and how God cares for them? Jesus offers this as an example of God cares a lot about his creation. He has lilies and he has ravens, he has grass, and he cares for all of it. He's got a purpose for everything. So why would you think that he wouldn't have a purpose for you? Have you considered these things or not? And it's interesting, right? It starts, the language is, not just look at the lilies, but to consider the lilies, to consider the ravens. It's one of those accompanying words to meditation. Christ also says, do not think about these other troubles you're going to have. Think about these things here. Look at it by way of analogy. Look at the world around you and deduce from it that God cares for you. And he will take care of you. When you see the lilies, when you see the ravens, you should be comforted to believe that God will do something in your life. He will care for you. And he will help you understand his love by looking at nature, by looking at the world around you. Providence does that for us. 
Creation does that for us. Meditating on those things brings it all together. Does that make sense? Yeah. You guys believe that? It's easy to just skip the ravens, right? It, you know, I, I'm glad he didn't say raccoons. We've got a raccoon <laughs> infestation, and they're just, you know, does God even love raccoons, right? you got to wonder, right? Hey, I was going to say that I struggle here because he also appears for mosquitoes and armadillos. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, right? Yeah, it's, but, yeah but, 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 you got to see it in the right light, right? Yeah, that's right. All right, well, I have a, I have a novel idea I want to close with today on this topic of meditation and I've had this idea swirling in my head I'm not going to insist too strongly on it but I hope it will be beneficial to you guys Um, let's talk about the Psalms in particular about meditation today let's think of the Psalms Uh, I want to use three Psalms picked largely at random and what I want to what I want to uh, say is first of all uh, everything I'm about to say is supported with the idea that it's God's holy and inspired word. Um, I believe Psalm 1 is in the place it is because the compiler of the Psalter put it there. I believe Psalm 2 is in the place it is. I believe every word of the Psalter. Uh, there's nothing disputing that. But let me ask you a few questions. Why do the Psalms contain the topics they do? Why? Why did Psalm 1, why did Psalm 1 come into existence? Why, why is Psalm 1 written as a guy who's standing and sitting and he's over here and he's around these guys and what he meditates on? Um, how did Psalm 8 go from thinking about creation, thinking about God's name, thinking about angels, thinking about our relationship to angels in light of creation? How did Psalm 73 get written. What was going on Asaph's mind? 73, he's writing about it. God is good to Israel, such a pure heart. Oh, my feet almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. I was envious. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 73 goes on and on. But what is it? What is it about the order of the Psalms? What is it about the content of the Psalms? When you read the book of Exodus or something, you'd expect that it would start with the children of Israel in Egypt and they got to make their way out and there's some path they take. And as you go through the old Pentateuch, you can see there's this unifying thought, but it's largely linear, right? I mean, it starts with Adam and there's some gaps and then there are details and it, it moves this direction. When you're, when you're reading the book of Judges, you might have a little trouble with the time, trying to figure out how much time went on, but you can see... We are going from the Exodus, we're getting settled, and we're getting to the point of kings. When you read Kings, you read Chronicles, you, you read it and say, yeah, there's a history. This guy had a son, he reigned, he did good, he did not. I mean, it all makes sense. You see the prophets, you know, they come in at different times and they start talking about things, right? Why do we have the Psalms? What are Psalms? What's the point of having songs? Now, I realize we have songs and we can sing these things, but that doesn't really answer the question. I don't think we have them just because we needed material, right? We do need material, but I don't think that's the only reason. And what I'd like to to propose is that we think about uh, the psalms as the meditations of God's saints, of a select number of saints, And those meditations, I'm somewhat fascinated by the order of the Psalter and some of the themes between the books. And it just strikes me as beyond comprehension why we don't have everybody agreeing on why the Psalter was laid out the way it was. I'm fascinated by this. I've read a lot of material on it. And some people buy into this idea and this idea. Nobody seems to buy it. I don't think many people even believe in the idea that it does have an organizing theme, that there just seem to be these books and they're assembled together, they're compilations. It's the collected works of a few saints and poems or something along those lines. Maybe we'll find out one day, I don't know. But you gotta wonder, how did all this stuff originate? What was David doing when he wrote Psalm 1? What was he thinking? Somehow, he had it in his head that God's word And he could depict it with postures as he was thinking about these things. It gelled in his mind. He thought about the end of the wicked. He thought about the end of the righteous. Somehow, I don't know where he was. I don't know what he was doing. But when you come to Psalm 8, 
He's thinking about God's name. Starts thinking about angels. Who thinks about angels? Do you guys think about angels? I have to confess, I think about angels a lot. I, it's weird. I, 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 I do. I think about angels, right? He made us a little lower than the angels. I don't even know how that makes sense, right? A little lower? What have you seen an angel? I mean, how do you compare the two? And yet, here he is, right? Here he is. And he says these magnificent things, but you kind of wonder, where did this thought come from? And so the point of this exercise is when you read the Psalms, one of the ways in which you can read the Psalms is to see how the psalmist was connecting dots. He was thinking about something, which led him to think about something else, which led him to think about this, and then to string them together. Now, the Psalms are inspired. So whatever David was thinking about was just the instrument of his occasion to write. But his actual connecting of the dots was inspired. The words he wrote down were inspired. But I'm telling you, it looks random, doesn't it? You pick up a certain psalm and you wonder what's he thinking about. I don't know if any of the Jews understood Psalm 110. Did they? It doesn't make a lot of sense. The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. It sounds like the contemporary version of I'm my own grandpa, right? <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah, and Jesus asked the question. He says, look, do you even understand this? Well, how do you understand that? You've got to connect dots. And that's what meditation does for you. It allows for you to think about these things and to connect the dots in a way that God intended. And so even if we never discover the, the full nature of how the Psalter is laid out, we can still appreciate its meditative aspects of it as examples for us as we think about life and we connect dots between what God has said, what he's created, how he's ordered the world, what's in our heart. By using our minds, we can put these things together in ways similar to what the psalmists have done. When we think about the psalms as meditations in themselves, I think it opens up a possibility for us to broaden the number of things that we're profitably thinking about things that can affect and enlarge our heart. So it is true that some of them are topics on historical examples. There's something going on in Psalm 73. I don't know what Asaph saw, right? None of us do. We don't know what he actually saw when he went into worship and realized their foot was going to slide in due time, right? It's not told us what happened, but he saw it. How did he see it? By thinking about it. By thinking about God's law, by thinking about what God had read, by thinking about what had happened to others. And he said, wait a minute, I've been thinking about this all wrong, and now I'm thinking about it in the right light. It was Asaph's opportunity to think about what God had written. In fact, as we, when we, sometimes I think when we hear the word law, we start thinking of legislation. You know, God said, don't boil a kid in his milk and don't eat this and don't eat pigs or whatever. We think of rules, but a more fundamental idea of Torah is instruction. And so when David or when Asaph was thinking about God's word as he had it in that day and contemplating what was going on in the lives of the righteous and the lives of, in the lives of the wicked, he was able to see that God was instructing them. Their foot would slide in due time. And he had almost slipped. He was able to put all these things together. Look at his own heart. Look at the wicked. Look at the world around him. See it in light of God's world. And then put the whole thing together. And now we have that meditation preserved for us. So it's an excellent example of, of for us to think about how to meditate. How to connect dots in our own world. And we shouldn't be afraid to do that. We shouldn't be afraid to look at people... And there are times you're going to look at what an individual is doing and saying, that person is an example of someone I should not be like. Why? Because that's what Solomon does in the book of Proverbs. He says, son, look at these guys. Don't do what they're doing. They are there for you to see as an example. When you wonder about the world, as David was doing with Psalm 8, you may come to some pretty spectacular conclusions, 
Emily, where are you? She's a little lower than the angels. That's amazing. How do you not think about that all day long, right? But you get that from a world of meditation with the content that God's provided for you. So perhaps take an additional perspective on how to think about the Psalms. It's good to sing the Psalms. It's good to worship with the Psalms. All of that is true, but it's also good to see them as meditations, as guides for us to construct and to connect our thoughts together. Does that make sense? Yeah. Pause here for just a second to see what comments you have for this novelty. God didn't desire bulls in blood. That's quite an insight. That's an excellent point, Jonathan. Yeah. What made him think of that? What was he contemplating to come to that conclusion? Yeah. Because God had told him, give me the bulls, give me the blood. That's that's excellent. But at some point, yeah, that's very good. Yeah. What other thoughts is the Psalms as meditations? on psalms as meditations. I appreciate that the psalms seem timeless, even though many of them are written at a certain time in history about something that's going on at a certain time, but it's very relatable to our own life, so it's easy to go to the psalms when there's struggle or and And I appreciate that so often it does feel like there's a reflection of providence, but David will be talking about where are you and he's suffering and then his thoughts turn to oh but you did this and you did that and what a great tool for us just to realize it's good to think about when in the midst of feeling like oh my goodness we'll never get out of this or this is always happening it's good to train our mind to turn backwards and go this God has proven, God has shown me this, God has done this, and the Psalms teach us to do that as well. He does. Cool, all right. One last verse for us today. As we think of how to meditate, this is a companion piece to how we meditate, and that is we talk about it. Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them, so a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. So how might your meditation help somebody else? Why talk about it? What's the point? It's helpful to hear what other It is, yes. It, it, can, it can help you. One of the difficulties, as Jeff was mentioning about sin in the world, but one of the headwinds that occurs to us because of sin in the world is that we don't understand providence the right way. We don't understand God's word the right way. We don't understand creation in the right light. And so hearing someone else bring light to it can be helpful to push us forward in our understanding. So that could be, could be very, very good. What other benefits might there be of talking about our meditations? Someone 
you have someone who is suffering in very similar way to the way you're suffering, and you hear their meditation, uh, even kind of uh, their application of it, or they're there to they'll notice things or see things, and you'll realize, wait, I've been missing that. My mind's been way over here, and then God uses that. It's, like it's, his, it's his word, and yet this pointer kind of helps you realize, wait, you're, you're right. You're on this right track, and there's great blessing and peace here, and I've just kind of been over here, and it really draws you in. In this particular case, I mean, it could be on anything, sharing around the tables or whatever we do here, but if you've got someone that's going through a remarkably similar PSA suffering, which actually, it's interesting you read the Psalms yourself, and like Meg was saying, sounds like he's been through the same thing. You know, the actual circumstances might be different. In some cases they're not, but that meditation can really draw you into as you just were not seeing that's right. And I, I would say the, the other example or the other reason why talking to others is it helps those thoughts gel in our own mind. As we explain it to someone else, you realize they look at you and say, uh, no, that's just not true at all. I don't know what you were thinking, but that's not right. And then you explain it a little differently and, and you work it out sometimes by talking about it or in this case, by having a class on it. I've been thinking about this for a long time, and it's helped me to think about it a little more clearly. So never dismiss the hard-to-quantify benefits of talking to each other about your meditations. It's a valuable piece. And you'll get your name written in this book. How cool is that, right? Abigail. That's right. Yeah, it, which which brings up a point that by by meditating on it and speaking to one another, you may not actually get anything out of what that other person said. Right? That doesn't mean the other person wasn't helped by having all these thoughts come together. So you might be there and not get anything from it, other than the, the benefit of being able to help someone else. So there's it's impossible to quantify. It's also highly likely we will underestimate the importance of speaking to one another about our meditations. I'm not sure how many people in here are following it, but there's a whole section of neuroscience today talking about attuned listening and neuroplasticity and the idea of connecting with another person and what that actually does physically. don't know if it's true or not, but there's all these studies. And I'm just struck by the fact that God already wrote this in the Bible right there thousands of years ago, as was already said. Sure. Yeah. Like we're discovering these things now. God can sit there and say, yeah, <laughs> so I'd like to close today's class trying to do two things one I want to discuss one of my meditations recently and then secondly I'd like to illustrate what I think is an example of occasional meditations so I think the idea of the, the uh, special dedicated times that we discussed are helpful but I think the occasional meditations may strike us as just odd so I'm, I'm reading through Psalm 119, and when you get to verse, I don't know, it was around 137, it's the opening of the Sada section, and the psalmist says, Righteous art you, O Lord, and upright are all your ways or your judgments. I forget which way you work it. And I read that and thought, that's kind of odd. Why does the psalmist see the need to tell God that his ways are righteous? I, mean, I don't know. It, I don't feel particularly compelled that I need to remind God that he's like that. I know it. He knows it. Why do we need to talk about it? I didn't get it, but I thought this. And in one of the commentaries I read was describing that the psalmist aims to clear God of any wrongdoing right out of the gate. I thought, well, yeah, maybe I could see that being helpful. So I thought about this, and I don't know, a few days later, I, uh, I hit the radio and NPR came on, and there was that soft, smarmy, empathetic voice interviewing someone who had <laughs> undergone some difficulty. I don't know what happened. I got it in the middle of 
uh, the, uh, the the call, and and it was the the guy um, was describing how difficult life had been since whatever these events were. It had something to do with churches somewhere. I don't know the Catholic Church, whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, but the the host asked, "Do you still?" I don't remember if he said, "Do you still worship or do you still go to church?" And he said, "No, I." I, I mean, I go occasionally. It's hard to break the habit. And he said, but I just don't see how it's right to worship of God who could allow so many horrific things to happen to individuals inside the church. I just don't see it. And right then, the thought came to mind, righteous art you, O Lord, and all your ways are just. And I told that guy on the radio, you're a fool. <laughs> See, I didn't have you guys to talk to about my meditation, so I told him, you're a fool. And you don't have a right to accuse God of wrongdoing. God's ways are righteous. And so here was an example of the Spirit using something that had occurred back here. It was somewhere in the subconscious. It was somewhere over here that he brings to mind on this occasion where it was needed. I didn't need to think about it without the occasion, but when the occasion came, the revelation of its importance came to me, and now it's cemented as part of me, so that when I hear God being accused of something, I now have internally a response that the psalmist used as well to help me understand, no, you're wrong. Your understanding of providence is wrong. Your understanding of God's ways are wrong. Because righteous art you, O Lord, and all your ways and your judgments are just. It's an example of an occasional meditation that comes to you. You might think, well, I have the need for that. That's not the point. I had a need for that. And the Spirit in His faithfulness made sure I was able to use my mind effectively to affect my heart to declare that God is good. His attributes were on display. His goodness is in his providence. Now, I don't understand the particulars, and I'm not denying the hurt the guy went through. But I'm saying whatever the explanation is, it isn't to accuse God of wrongdoing. Now, I'm not smart enough to know what the right answer is, but I can tell you what the wrong answer is. And that guy could not see that God was good in his acts of providence. I did. And I did it because the Spirit gave me the opportunity right there with that occasional meditation. God is good, not only with that guy, but God was good to me to help me understand a perplexing argument that somebody gave on a popular show with fountains of empathy behind it. Three cheers for God. He's good to his people. Occasional meditations. Let's talk about it. All right. Any questions or comments before we end this class? At the very end. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Cool. Let's pray.